You're listening to a sermon from St. John's Anglican in Cranbourne. To find out more about us, head to cranbourneanglican.org.au. Well, thanks so much to Sam and Delessia for reading the Bible for us. Uh, what a pleasure it is to see some new faces on screen. Unfortunately, you've got me. I'm Jimmy. Uh, I'm the assistant minister uh, here. And it's my great pleasure and delight to open up Romans 3 with you this morning. I wonder if you've ever heard the story of the emperor with new clothes, the emperor of new clothes. There was an emperor once upon a time who was vain, very vain, and he loved fashion, loved it. And one time there were a group of tricksters, con men, who entered into his city and told him that they could make him a robe, a garment, some clothes of incredible value with very rare materials. And the emperor was really excited about this, especially about one feature of these incredible rare materials, that the robe would be completely invisible to anyone who was foolish. So he commissioned the robe, the clothes, and he, uh, he, he sent them out to start making it. And they, they sat down and they pretended to make the clothes because of course there there wasn't real invisible material but eventually the king thought you know what I'm going to check I'm going to send out my chief advisor just to check on how things are going so the chief advisor goes and and checks on the tricksters who are making this robe he can't see anything but he doesn't want to be seen as a fool he doesn't want to be seen as foolish so he starts telling them how beautiful the robe is. And after a while, the king says, I want to check on this robe. I want to see what's going on. So the king goes and the king sees nothing. But the king also doesn't want to be seen as foolish. So the king says, well, it's beautiful. It's stunning. It's magnificent. It's incredible. He didn't want to be seen as foolish. And this goes on and on and on until they They give the the robe over to the king, the emperor, and he calls for a huge parade. He's going to parade in front of all the citizens of his town, of his city. And well, the king's not wearing any clothes. But all the citizens don't want to be seen as foolish. So they start praising the king for his beautiful garments, for how well he's dressed. Until a small little boy cries out, the emperor is not wearing any clothes. All of a sudden, the spell was broken. Everyone realized that the emperor was not wearing any clothes. And that they had been indeed foolish. Well, it's a, it's a great story of pride and not wanting to, like, just wanting to fall in with the crowd. And you might be wondering, what does this have to do with Romans chapter 3? Well, in the emperor's new clothes, the emperor is convinced that he's clothed even though he is not. And in Romans 3, Paul points out, he takes the posture of the small little boy, that the clothes that we have clothed ourselves, the clothes of religious obedience, aren't there. It's the exact same story as the emperor's new clothes. 
And if you've been following along over the last couple of weeks, you'll have seen this, that Paul has been pointing out all the things that we do, all the acts and the obedience that we have, doesn't save us. He's pointed out particularly for Israel a couple of areas in which they thought they were clothed. They thought they were safe, but in fact they were not. He says firstly in Romans 2 that they believed that because they had the Bible, the Old Testament, they were safe. They saw themselves as guides to the blind, correctors of the foolish. But Paul undressed them and said, It doesn't matter if you have the words of God, if you don't believe the words of God. They also believed that they were clothed in the mark of circumcision, the sign of being God's people. But Paul again showed that religious affiliation doesn't mean much if you're not actually obedient to God. The religious clothes that they've put on aren't covering anything. And so Paul has made this argument over the last chapter, and in Romans 3, we start to see some objections. And the first objection is asking, what worth is it to be a Jew then? If these things that have been handed down don't save us, then what good are they? So it's written in Romans 3, verse 1 and 2, what advantage has the Jew? What is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, for in the first place the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. The question is, if having these things doesn't save us, then what good is it to be a Jew? What good is it to be God's people? And in fact, we could ask the same question today. If going to church, if reading the Bible, if praying, if being with God's people, if confession doesn't save you, then what good is it? Why don't I just go and do whatever I want? What value is there in being a Christian? And Paul's response is there is much value in every way. Particularly, he points for Israel the oracles of God, which is a a shorthand for the Old Testament, the words of God, the stories that have been passed down from generation to generation. It might not save you, but it is good. These things are good. They won't save you, but they are good. We particularly are blinded to that in the world that we live in, because any one of us can pick up the Bible. In fact, I almost guarantee that if you've been going to church for a little while, you'll have more Bibles in your home than people. We accumulate Bibles. We have the words of God everywhere we go. We can have it on our phones. We have like four or five translations. That wasn't the case for Israel. You had to go to the temple or remember the words of God. And in fact, if you weren't part of Israel, you didn't have the words of God. Charles Spurgeon says that in a world of darkness, they had the light. That's a benefit. That's an advantage. They could know what God is like when no one else could. They could open up the Bible and see what God is like and see what God was saying to them and see what God was calling them to. That's an advantage. And in fact, we have the same kind of advantage. It says in in 2 Timothy 3.15, Paul is writing to his, uh, his, his protege Timothy 
He says, you have known the sacred writings, that is the Bible, that are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. In other translations, it says, make you wise for salvation. The Bible doesn't save us, but it makes us wise because it tells us what God is like. So these things don't save. These these things that we've clothed ourselves in, we've made the mistake of thinking that they save us, but they are good. But then there's this kind of interesting back and forth that Paul has, maybe with an opponent, maybe with an imaginary opponent that he's writing based on what people have been saying to him. So let's just follow it through together. So someone asks, what if some were unfaithful? Will their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? So they're sort of saying, hey, God has has told us that he would carry us, that he would save us. So if we're not saved and if our unfaithfulness undermines the promises of God, does that mean that God's not faithful? Paul says, by no means. Although everyone is a liar, let God be proved true as it is written, so that you may be justified in your words and prevail in your judging. But then someone asks, if our injustice serves to confirm the justice of God, what should we say that God is unjust to inflict wrath on us? So someone's asking, well, if our unfaithfulness shows the faithfulness of God, how can he really turn around and judge us? We've just shown God as good. Paul says, stop being so silly. How then could God judge the world? Everyone is unfaithful. And we all agree that it's good that God judges the world. And it ends in this. If through my falsehood, God's truthfulness abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not say, as some people say, as slander us by saying that we say, let us do evil so that good may come, their condemnation is deserved. It comes to this crux point where Paul's opponents are saying that he preaches a cheap gospel. That Paul's going around saying that because you don't need the law, the law can't save you. He's preaching cheap grace. A grace that says you can do whatever you want. Just believe in God and it doesn't matter what you do from Monday through to Saturday. Just turn up on Sunday, worship, say your confessions. It's it's all fine. And Paul just bats it away and says, stop being so silly. I'm not saying that. I don't believe that. I don't preach cheap grace. I don't preach a cheap gospel. No one believes that. Except the thing is that sometimes I wonder whether we believe that. Our culture, our modern culture, that we're so, we're so wrapped around this idea of God's forgiveness that sometimes we can get trapped. See, if religious obedience doesn't save you, and nothing can separate us from the love of God, then why does it really matter what I do? If my acts don't save me, and God is loving and merciful and kind and forgiving, then why not just rely on His forgiveness? In fact, it makes God look better if He's always forgiving me, because He can be seen as loving and merciful and forgiving. Why not have the best of both worlds? God's forgiveness is immense rich and deep 
and beautiful, but we cheapen, we cheapen God's forgiveness when we treat it like that. Let me put it like this. Imagine someone has given you a car of immeasurable worth, and something that you could never afford on your own, and he's, they've given it to you as a, as a gift. No strings attached. It's yours. A Lamborghini, a Ferrari, an Aston Martin DB5, James Bond's car has been given to you free of charge. What an incredible gift that would be. But imagine for a moment that you kept the car in the garage. You don't change the oil when you're supposed to. You don't get the car serviced. Dust starts accumulating. You don't drive it. You don't cherish it. You don't treasure it. You don't love the gift. And so the gift ends up being cheapened. The gift ends up being cheapened. Because the gift was designed to be driven and loved. Let me be clear, God's grace is free. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you are free from your sins. But let us not cheapen that gift by living lives that treat Jesus' sacrifice on the cross as cheap. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of my favorite theologians, he uh, operated in Nazi Germany, was one of the main people who fought back, lost his life in that struggle, wrote uh, a book about the cost of discipleship, and he has these incredible words. He says, grace is costly because it costs God the life of his son. You are bought at a price, and what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. But above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Grace is free, but it cost Jesus his life. And we cannot cheapen it. We have to hold these two things in tension, that religious obedience don't, doesn't save you. But let us not take lightly what Jesus has sacrificed for. He set us free not to be sent back into slavery. The next couple of verses, the next 11 verses, is to be quite frankly brutal. It is this string of Old Testament passages, about six or so Old Testament passages that have been put together to create a holistic description and account of our sinfulness. Dr. Addison Leach once said that if sin was the color blue, Romans 3 is describing that all of us have blue all over us. Verse 9, what then? Are we any better off? He's talking to Israel. No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under the power of sin as it is written. There is no one who is righteous, not even one. There is no one who has understanding. No one who understands what God is like. No one who cherishes the truth about God. No one whose mind is formed around the reality of who God is. There is no one who seeks God. No one who naturally desires to want to be with God, to want to be like God, to follow Jesus. All have turned aside together 
they have become worthless. There is no one who shines, shows kindness. There is not even one. Other translations say there's no one who does good. And we might say, well, there are good people who do good things, but yes, they don't do them to the glory of God. They don't do them as God created them to do. So even their best works fall short. Even our good works aren't good. He says their throats are open graves. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of vipers is under their lips. We only have to look at social media to know that that is true. That when the thin veneer of face-to-face conversation is removed, all kinds of wickedness come from our tongue of, of being mean to people, of being unkind, of being slanderous. We use our tongues for so much destruction. Our mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery are in their paths. And the way of peace they have not known. Sarah and I have a saying in our house that in the end, everyone does what they want to do. In the end, everyone does what they want to do. And what we want to do is this. We say we want life. We say we want good. But what we pursue is not the way of peace. And Paul's final assessment is that there is no fear of God before their eyes. The fear of God is sometimes a hard concept for us to grasp because it's not quite like fear, like the cowering fear, like when you're watching a scary movie or when you hear something rustling in the leaves outside when you're camping and you're wondering what on earth that is. It's the kind of fear that comes from knowing you're in the presence of someone who's so much stronger than you. Someone who could wipe out your entire existence. God is mighty and big and powerful. It's that kind of fear. It's reverence and all. And so he continues on. He says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world may be made accountable to God. There's no one after this assessment is going, nah, I think I'm good. I think I've passed. I, that's, that's not me. We all have fallen short of the glory of God. We're the emperor and we're wearing no clothes. Earlier this week, Sam and I, uh, we, we, every week we, uh, we have a couple of times the week where we have morning prayer and evening prayer. And During morning prayer one time this week, we were reading a passage and restrictions had just been extended and we're feeling frustrated and sad and we're reading this difficult passage and we say to one another, I just wish it was a bit more encouraging. But what a hard text for a lockdown situation. And I feel like some of you in your homes may be asking the same question of Romans 3. Why couldn't we just have something a bit more encouraging? something a bit more uplifting, something to stir our affections for God. This is brutal. And I get it. I get it. It reminds me of a friend I had a couple of years ago who was going through an incredibly messy divorce. Lots of sinfulness on both sides. His sin, her sin. And I would remember 
getting off the phone with him, like after an hour of talking through what was going on and through the sin that was so abundant in this relationship and working out if there could be reconciliation. And then I'd log on to Instagram and see that they had put up a photo going to get an ice cream, hashtag blessed. And the gap between what I knew to be reality and the facade that was being pushed out to the world was so wide and it was destructive. And what Romans 3 is sort of hinting at is that we all do that. We all have a gap between the reality of who we are before God and the the things that we push out to the world, the, the image that we push out to the world, and it is destructive. And so what Romans 3 actually invites us to do is to put, put the facade down, put the p- facade of righteousness down, put the facade of right standing down that we're saved based on our works. It sees us for who we truly are, Sinners needing a saviour. And that only sounds like bad news to people who don't know they're sinners, who don't know they need a saviour. To people who know they need Jesus, it is good and glorious news because we can stop pretending. Because here's the truth. I need Jesus. I'm a sinner. Sam needs Jesus. He's a sinner. We all need Jesus. And that's what Romans 3 gets at. It's an invitation. Tim Keller puts it like this. To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. And for many of us, that's what our church experiences are like. We're loved, but you don't really know the true me, the deep me, the real me. We come to Sunday and we wear our Sunday bests. We ask each other how we are. We say, I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm okay today. We confess our sins communally, but never individually. And then we leave never really sharing who we are or going all that deep. It's comforting, but superficial. And the reason we do that is because of a fear that we have. And Keller gets at this next. He says, to be known and not loved is our greatest fear. Because what if people discover who I really am, what I've really done, what I'm really like, and they don't accept me, they don't love me, they don't want to know me. I couldn't bear that, so I'd rather be not known and loved. But here's the truth. To be fully known and fully loved, that's what being loved by God is like. Here's the incredible thing. Romans 3, this beautiful, brutal assessment of human sinfulness, that's who Jesus died for. That's who Jesus went to the cross for. That's who Jesus bore the sins of. Not someone with a few sins, not someone with a light sin. That person. That's who Jesus died for. And so what this really is, is an invitation to put down the facade. Put down the image that we're pushing out there of who we are 
and to be who we really are and to drink deeply at God's, the river of God's grace and mercy and love for us in Christ Jesus. But you can't drink deeply in the shallows. You have to dive in. Dive in to the shallows and into the depths where you are fully known and fully loved. The truth is that if we only ever confess our sin shallowly, we only really experience a shallow version of God's grace. It's when we see ourselves for who we truly are that we can experience the fullness and richness of God's mercy and love for us. Because you are fully known by God and fully loved by God. So dive in and drink deeply. Now let me pray. God, we thank you for Romans 3 and the difficult, the brutal assessment it gives us of human sinfulness. We thank you that the story doesn't end there, that it's not just an assessment without any remedy, but in fact you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die for us on the cross to set men and women who need a saviour free. God, I pray that we would not cheapen your gift but that we live lives of praise and worship to you, cherishing what has cost you much. God, let us be people who drink deeply of your riches of mercy and grace. May we confront the truth about who we are. Let us not hide under these religious clothes of obedience, but rather present ourselves to you as we truly are, fully expecting that you know exactly who we are, and you love us in Christ Jesus all the same. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.